Welcome to Precision Medicine Forum Podcast, chatting with patients, healthcare, industry and research professionals about creating personalized medicines for each and every one of us. Together, we head to the holy grail, mainstream precision medicine. Here's your host, Steve Coldicott. Uh, welcome to Precision Medicine Forum Podcast. Our guest today is Francesco Florindi. Um, Francesco is the Strategic Partnerships Manager for Predictive Genomics at Thermo Fisher Scientific. Francesco, welcome. Hi, Steve. Thank you. Nice to be here. Can you give us a bit of background? Your job title is, is, is sounds awfully exciting, if I'm honest. Um, can you give us a little bit of background about your work, what you're responsible for at the moment? Uh, yes, Steve, my job title looks very exciting, but uh, let, let me let me break it down into something a bit more digestible and, and understandable. <laughs> my job is 50% business development and 50%, uh, I would say, uh, something in between public affairs and, and communication. So on one side, I'm trying to uh, help Thermo Fisher connect better with uh, uh, the top scientific and policy key opinion leaders, uh, trying to uh, figure out... Uh, What's the future of predictive genomics? Uh, how we can uh, build uh, large programs uh, and uh, and uh, get more business done? And on the other hand, I'm also trying to educate uh, people outside of the classic, uh, let's say, customer based uh, to end, to educate governments, educate uh, uh, medical societies, all sorts of key opinion leaders who have an impact on the future of predictive genomics, but might just not have as much information as they need to. To make the right decisions. Right. That's what I do on a daily basis. We, we end up talking quite a lot about this with people, the, the education side of things. It, it, it's a challenge, isn't it, depending on who you're talking to, of course, whether that is government or healthcare practitioners or, or whoever it may be. What are the challenges you're finding there? And indeed, what are the successes you've had? I'm afraid more challenges than successes so far, uh, Stephen. But, uh, <laughs> the reality is that the technology... Uh, in and around predictive uh, precision medicine and predictive genomics in particular, uh, it has developed so much in uh, in a relatively short time frame uh, that um, up to a certain extent, I can't blame policymakers not for their lack of understanding. Um, that doesn't mean that they shouldn't do their homework and we shouldn't help them to to understand. Yeah, but it's true that uh, there the, the was such a huge amount of innovation and and some of it uh, it's more useful than. Uh, than others. Some of it is more implementable than others. Some of it is more, you know, long-term uh, space to 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 achieve success. Some of it is more, you know, kind of low-hanging fruit. And uh, I, I get it's it's quite complicated. Yeah. If I have to mention one success, uh, maybe uh, that's uh, the like the most recent one would be uh, what we managed to achieve with uh, the uh, Qatar Precision Medicine Initiative. Okay. That was actually pretty good because we managed to. Um, make the key decision uh, uh, key opinion leaders understand the importance of predictive genomics they were a bit converted in a sense they've already made a substantial amount of you know investments in the field of genomics but then they understood the specificities of the population what the what the Qatari society really needs and then decided to run with it and and choose the uh, predictive genomics as a um, solution to, you know, long-term solution to decrease the number of people being affected by disease and to understand better, you know, how to provide good healthcare to to the population. So that's, if you ask me for us for a, for a, you know, success in communication, that was a pretty successful, but again, um, kind of low-hanging fruit for us in the sense that it was an easier, an easier 
an easier sell because the leadership there already understood the the power of genomics in a very very clear way sure and and i'm guess uh, like everything if if the finance is there it makes a massive difference doesn't it definitely but um uh, look at uh, the recovery and resilience facility all around europe money i don't think it's an, it's a problem we see countries like italy like spain for example spending a lot of money on new health research programs and uh, being uh, provided with even more funding coming from Europe. Yeah. Again, I don't know how much the listeners, listeners know about the uh, all-powerful uh, recovery and resilience facility, but this is a, a, a huge pot of money provided by by Brussels to recover from you know post-COVID. Okay. And a lot of it will be spent on health research. They do have funding. The question is, are they going to spend it on uh, technologies and solutions that they can provide uh, long-term return of investments in terms of, you know, qualities and dollies and 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 uh, saving in the healthcare system, or are they going to spend it somewhere else? I guess you know certainly if you if you're talking about, um, well, I'm going to say the NHS, but of course we're not part of Europe anymore. But I guess you know every country is the same in the sense that there's huge backlogs. It makes sense, doesn't it, that people will say well, we need to reduce these backlogs. That's where the money's going to have to go. That's the way governments behave. Uh, they they have an election cycle, and that's the lifespan of every possible investment and or action. You know, is, is it three years? Is it five years? Depending on where you live, uh, all the problems need to live within this time frame. Reality works differently. We've learned it with climate change uh, that you know governments need to start planning for after their demise, after the end of the legislature really move on into a broad, you know, broader timescale. <laughs> I would argue that if they've started to be doing this with climate change uh, and they've encountered a lot of uh, uh, positive you know, support from the population, they should do the same in healthcare and in predictive genomics in particular. And I, I predict that they will receive even more support from the electorate because health is something so important that it's so highly valued by all Europeans, including uh, Brits. Sure. It's going to take uh, a lot, you know, long time to see the benefits of uh, investment made in, in, uh, in predictive genomics, so in personalized medicine in general. But uh, uh, that's, I believe, and uh, having been a patient advocate, having worked a lot with governments and so on, I believe that that's what people want to see, this sort of long-term health investments. Talking about Qatar, I know that... Um... I saw one of your posts on LinkedIn recently, which was talking about that. As a model, what differentiates it from from everything else that you've seen, and why do you say it's success? Obviously, you know, we talked about um, the fact that they're forward thinking and uh, and there's investment there. But is there anything else that makes it stand out? Yes, uh, it's a systemic approach. Personalized medicine is not one single solution. Uh, you know, for how much I love the pharma industry and, and all the beautiful innovation they brought, yep. personalized medicine cannot be reduced to one drug or one uh, diagnostic. It's a complex model of different solutions that need to live together into a system. When it comes to figuring out, developing new predictive personalized medicine solution, you really need the collaboration of different layers. Um, in Qatar, the, they managed to really create a ecosystem of uh, uh, great research infrastructure that are all playing together, bringing their their um, value and their assets all together towards a common goal. So there we have the 
Qatar Personalized Medicine Initiative, which is really physically comprised of two institutions that were before separate and then they have been merged into one. Qatar Biobank, very famous, one of the top biobanks in the world in terms of standards and quality of the samples they, they collect, uh, and the Qatar Genome Program, so the, the, the more research-oriented arm, if you want. Around these two players, you have all the healthcare providers, all the um, university hospitals uh, the, and, and universities that really bring in people and resources to uh, to chip in their own into this this initiative. Uh, if you pair that with the, uh, the the funding that has been provided, which is of course that's, that's undeniably you know, important, but also with the one shared vision, it makes it makes this whole ecosystem extremely powerful. In other European countries, we've seen attempts uh, to to do uh, to create similar programs, um, but I'm afraid that the, uh, there's often a little bit more competition between academic centers than than collaboration. This is a kind of a fact. I'm not stating anything controversial here. In the sense, that we we all anyone who had to deal with a Horizon Europe project or Horizon 2020 project knows very well what what I'm talking about. Uh, this is actually a healthy behavior, this competition. But for certain fields, for certain core infrastructure, certain core services, like biobanking, like uh, uh, genotyping, sequencing, I would argue that it's better to centralize a little bit rather than let everyone do their own thing, because this kind of um, disperse uh, resources that could otherwise be spent more efficiently. It makes one wonder if it's easier because the scale is not so massive. You know, with a, with a relatively small population and therefore a lesser number of institutions to be competitive with one another, maybe that's an issue and uh, and that's what we need to look at in other countries and, you know, start small and scale up. I, I agree with you because you, we see that the most advanced uh, uh, genomic programs in the world are, you know, Qatar, Finland, Taiwan, uh, all countries with a, you know, limited amount of people, yep. sort of uh, isolated uh, that makes total sense. But I think as a, com as a community, as a whole, we've learned enough from these programs. They've been around for, okay, Qatar started recently, but they've been doing their work for several years. FinGen in Finland has been going on since 2017. Yeah. Uh, we've learned a lot from these programs and from the way they do, uh, that they achieve their scientific and, and I would say business, but at least uh, you know they, they have also a relationship with the industry. They shared a lot of how they do their their work, and I believe that larger countries uh, like Italy, the UK, France, Germany, they're they're ready. We we have all we know how to do this uh, large genomic programs. Question is, are we going to put the money forward? The UK has been also, of course, extremely advanced in this field. I'm really looking forward to see how our future health will develop. Now it's of course kind of getting together as a as a, the largest genomic uh, program in the world yeah uh, still has to deliver anything clearly but that's that's very interesting because it could be um it shows that it, it demonstrates what I'm trying to say in a sense if a large uh, country like the UK with a national healthcare system is ready to to do that i believe other countries in europe are also in a theoretical position they tick all the boxes they have all the ingredients What's missing is a um, visionary chef who can actually put all this together. And maybe there's not one chef, we need more people. <laughs> Someone who actually decides to 
purposefully and and coherently you know invest uh, human capital financial capitals to get Italy France Germany Spain in par with with what's happening in uh, in UK and in Finland it's interesting you talk about Finland I know that your background is a lot of biobanking um, and obviously Finland they've been biobanking for decades haven't they you know they've got some some um, great data there as a result of, of one of our events Nordic Precision Medicine Forum I know quite a lot of the people um, involved in FinGen and, and, and other projects around there and it just strikes me that they not only have they got the biobanks but They've recently changed the law, haven't they, as regards sharing of data. What sort of emphasis would you put on on the data sharing? You know, with your background in biobanking, for those people who don't know, um, maybe you can tell us about your, your previous role as well. Yeah, I, I used to work for BBMRI, Eric, which is the largest uh, biobanking infrastructure in the world. Over 700 biobanks connected the, under the umbrella of BBMRI. Yep. across Europe. But also BBMRI is also, is, you know, it's very big, but it's also very distributed. So all these biobanks are uh, individually operated. They are publicly funded. So they, they have their own initiatives and they network via BBMRI uh, to give more visibility to the samples and uh, to work on standardization issues, ethical legal society issues, data issues, and so on together. So from, from that perspective, indeed, uh, I think... Uh, uh, a lot of uh, people in the biobanking world are a bit jealous of the regulatory framework in in uh, in Finland, because again, it creates a coherent national uh, uh, ecosystem where biobanks are um, part of the same network and they work together in, the, in under one let's say um, set of rules. The biobanking law in Finland has been used as a model for similar legislation in other countries. In my perspective, that is the gold standard right now in Europe. Uh, what's happening in Finland. If you talk to the Finns, they will tell you that the, the legislation is bad and it doesn't work. But, <laughs> you know, I suppose that the, the grass is always greener. Uh, <laughs> the data sharing bit is extremely important, but we're not going to get there until the regulatory framework will allow a certain level of, of freedom and a certain level of flexibility to uh, trustworthy organizations like biobanks to share not just the samples, but also the analysis and the metadata connected to the samples. So clinical, clinical data and, and uh, I don't know, genotyping information that might be attached to the sample. And right now, again, apart from Finland and Denmark, UK, a few other countries, it's very complicated. GDPR comes up all the time, of course, you know, in, in conversations and, and, and at our events too. You see that as a massive challenge? Sure. A lot of it has been said about the, the way GDPR has impacted the health research. I remember I used to be lobbying for a patient advocacy group when GDPR was being negotiated. Right. And I remember fondly, you know, the the conversations at the uh, the Libe committee about uh, in the European Parliament on you know amendments that would have destroyed the biobanking and they would have destroyed the health research. That and luckily these amendments were were you know did not end up in the final uh, in the final draft. Still, uh, everyone complains about Article 89, Article 4, and all the, all the issues that they create. Let's try to be positive. The new uh, European health data space, it's a new regulation coming uh, to the fore. The draft has been published a little over, uh, I think, a month ago. It's very ambitious. And it provides an opportunity for the whole community, academia, industry, patients, everyone, to um, 
rewrite uh, uh, a little bit the, the 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 mistakes of GDPR, if you want, the imprecisions of the GDPR when it comes to health data, and create a more let's like surpass the issue, the, the, the surpass consent as the as the block for the reuse of of data. Uh, of health data. This legislation is really at the uh, at its infancy, so it. I'm very curious to see how the different players will uh, will play their cards and and what's going to end up in the end. I, I, my my uh, advice to the listeners listeners and to you to everyone is you know get informed about this legislation. Uh, try to figure out if anyone in your network is is, is already working on it. Um, to see to to have an impact on on how this uh, piece of legislation will be adopted. Um, the reality is that it's it's it has a lot of potential. I think it could have gone even further uh, in certain in certain instances. For example, with relationship with ethical committees. That's my personal opinion. Um, but it definitely provides an opportunity for the whole community to basically tell the regulator, dear regulators, there is a gap between what people really want to share and watch your writing in the legislations this is an opportunity to bridge that gap and allow more health data to be circulated in a safe way what scope do you see or what, what do you think should be the way forward in how these successful countries regions whatever how they help others because this is a global thing right the more the more we can work together the more diverse the data we have the better and more predictive the medicines can become. It's probably a fair comment. I'm neither a scientist nor a healthcare practitioner, but I think that's pretty straightforward. How can we do that? How can we encourage the Finns, the Qataris, etc., you know, perhaps um, Genomics England and the like, to, to, to sort of share their learnings um, with other countries? Because it's, it's a damn sight cheaper if you're, if you're not having to overcome the obstacles that some people already have. Yeah, you make a fair point, uh, Steve. I believe we have, uh, there are two issues here. One, uh, I think, is the UK Biobank, the 1000 genome, uh, and I'm sure OFH will follow into this path. They have shared plenty when it comes to data, uh, publications, uh, all sorts of governance information about how to run these projects. I've seen so many presentations and talked to Rory Collins and everyone who's actually been involved in all these projects, I don't think there is any any wish or any obstacle for them to, you know, give information uh, uh, away to those who want to listen. And that's the problem number one. How many decision makers are really listening to the way, um, uh, for example, FinGen has been put together? Uh, I don't think that there are, for how much, again, information you have helped to generate, to collect, and many others in this field have collected via conferences and so on, I still don't know how many uh, decision makers are able and willing to listen. So <laughs> point number one, uh, we got the information, I think we just have to package it and shop it a little bit better. And the second information is that even if that happens, who's going to pay for it? Yeah. Who's going to pay for this? large genomic programs to be put together. I see a huge opportunity in the, I don't want to repeat myself, but in the recovery and resilience facility, we also have large uh, uh, you know, funding coming from Brussels in terms of uh, uh, Horizon Europe funding that can be used to pilot e uh, these programs, say that the country needs to figure out the return on investment. Let's, I, I believe there are opportunities out there to 
run such pilots via Horizon. And I'm not inventing the wheel because some of these projects are already being funded by Horizon. One of them is the Beyond 1 million genome project yeah. that's already trying to kind of standardize the data issues and LC issues and all sorts of issues around genomics. What I would love to see is one portion of, of Horizon, for example, or one portion of national programs fully dedicated to, to predictive genomics. Because the, um, the, that's the only way we're going to see long-term return of investments. Uh, and that, so the, the, the two topics that I mentioned here, you know, package the information a little bit better for policymakers and convince them to spend some more money. It really goes with a third, uh, let's say, it comes with a third uh, caveat, which is we're going to see the results of this work in a longer time frame. Yeah. It's going to take 10 years minimum to see these results. Um, and they only will be visible if they're done at, at scale. So if we wait for, you know, if we wait uh, the OFH in 10 years or however it's the long, the, I don't remember right now the time frame by which they're going to start to deliver reports and so on. But if we wait that time, if the rest of Europe waits by, by then to engage, it'll be too late. Yeah. There's also an equity discussion here. Uh, we always talk about equity and diversity in genomics and uh, the massive need and desperate need to actually uh, sequence and genotype more people from uh, diverse backgrounds, from Africa, Southeast Asia, Latin America, and so on. This is absolutely true. I think we need to start talking also about an equity gap that is coming, that's not already there, that will come in the future. Some countries will have been investing in genomics better and more than others, and they will reap the benefits of this genomics innovation in their own healthcare systems. And we can share all the articles and all the innovation and all the you know, theory that we want with all the other countries. But if they don't have, but if, the, you know, if one country doesn't have the infrastructure in place, yeah. Uh, we can tell them how to do, you know, uh, a UK biobank sort of projects all, all we want, but they're just not going to be able to do anything with it. So, and that's going to create imbalances and inequities in the level of healthcare service provided. Not now, maybe in 10 years, but that's going to be, it, it will be a big difference. It will be a big gap that uh, it won't be covered just by allocating more money to buy that equipment or buy that drug. It's a systemic issue, um, and I really would want to see um, in in 15 years' time, 20 years' time, signals that the the um, you know life expectancy in Finland or in the UK is getting much better than the rest of Europe because they can reap the benefits of predictive genomics. That would be very sad. I wish the rest of Europe would follow through. What's your definition of predictive genomics? So my definition, this is again a play of, uh, you know, like a play of definitions. Everyone has a different way to talk about this. Uh, common complex disease, uh, polygenic risk scores, pharmacogenomics, uh, population genomics. Predictive genomics, that's the thermal Fisher jargon. This really wants to be uh, the, the, the way to do healthcare in the future, not in a purely uh, reactive way. You get sick, you get treatment. But in a preventive way, you get genotyped. We understand from your genotype what sort of disease you have a higher risk uh, for, uh, which disease you will develop in the future or might develop in the future, and tailor make healthcare intervention before you develop that disease so you can prevent rather than cure. 
to that, we attach pharmacogenomics, which is similar concept. Instead of blindly prescribing drugs that are, you know, uh, all the same to all the people and they don't react all the same to all the people, we can start prescribing the right drug to the right patient at the right time, again, based on their genotype. Um, so that's, that's my definition of, of predictive genomics in a nutshell. Using these two instruments, polygenic risk course and pharmacogenomics, to keep people healthy for longer and to help them get the right treatment when they need it for re at the time they're going to need it. Right. Here comes the fun bit. Our special feature at the end of the podcast that we like to do, we're called Forward in Five Minutes. So this is the deal. I'm going to ask you to give us... Um, a description of what each of these stakeholders should be doing to help forward precision medicine, personalized medicine, stratified medicine, whatever you want to call it. You've got five minutes. We're going to try and do a minute for each. So we're going to look at patients, research, industry, healthcare, and governments. Okay, I've got my special timer. I'm going to count you down in five minutes. So the first group we'll go with is the research community. Overcome the barrier, the psychological barrier of working with the industry and understand that on the other side of the barricade, there are as many good researchers as there are in academia. And there is a lot of opportunities that you can help uh, industry translate into something that changes people's lives. Um, there are a lot of examples. Uh, this doesn't, I'm not, I don't want to shame academia, but I've seen many, many times this issue where Working with industry, it becomes complicated. Follow the leadership of the top researchers out there. Working with the industry can make a difference. And on top of that, they've done, they're have done. they already doing an amazing job in terms of discovering new treatments and, and uh, uh, figuring out new ways to implement, to, to create new predictive uh, precision medicine solutions. Excellent. Is that nine seconds? 51 seconds. Well done. Right. That's research. Okay, next one, we'll go with industry then. You ready? Go. Companies need to figure out uh, a, a way to uh, collaborate on uh, large projects that uh, provide a sort of a plain level field for everyone, but also can make a big difference uh, for the patients. OFH is a good example uh, in terms of uh, you know industry chipping in. FinGen is also another great example. There are ways in which public-private partnerships can be effective and uh, transparent and efficient. So that's number one. Number two, um, I don't think we are using our trade associations uh, well enough. We can do more with FPI. We can do more with MedTech Europe. We can do more with other organizations as such. Uh, I know that they have uh, a lot of priorities and everyone wants to uh, take a bite at, <laughs> at them. Um, but we can re we can focus uh, uh, these organizations into a uh, stronger personalized medicine agenda. Stop. Oh, I betrayed you there with a couple of seconds extra on my clock. Anyway, you're still looking good. Right, next group. Let's go with patients. What can patients and patient advocacy groups do to forward precision medicine? First, get educated. I'm not talking about the associations. They already know plenty. They are really expert in what they're talking about. But I wish that uh, at the national level and even at the, at the individual level, patients would just know more about the opportunities. I know that this is complicated to explain to my, my father died of lung cancer. So I know very well how complicated it is to explain to a 70 year old about a clinical trial. 
but at the same time, there are opportunities out there that can be can be taken by by patients, and they just need to know more. Uh, to the associations out there, just keep doing the great job you're doing. I, I love to see uh, some some big players also kind of stepping up uh, to the field. I'm not mentioning names, uh, but there uh, there is a there is a big need for for uh, uh, for for the associations to have a strong strong voice. Some of you are doing really an amazing job, and I'm personally proud. Brilliant. Uh, two more to go. So. The second to last, we'll go with healthcare. So healthcare practitioners and the healthcare community, um, what can they do? They have immense power. Doctors and physicians and learned societies, you have an immense power through your guidelines, through your congresses to um, define the way any, predict, any personalized medicine solution is, is actually implemented. Uh, this is a huge responsibility you have. I wish the conversation was more interactive, not just for industry to go and explain what's what's coming, uh, but also for you to explain to to the to industry what are the issues, so that we can have a full conversation about these guidelines. Uh, that's the the most effective bit, like the the low hanging fruit. Education is also huge because the doctors of tomorrow are the students of today, and I wonder how much they know about predictive genomics and nanotechnologies, AI, and all sorts of innovations that are going to hit the market even faster than their professors had to deal with. So um, education and let's work together on the guidelines. Education is a bit of a theme here, isn't it? Definitely. Final category. You'll be, you'll be delighted here. It's the final one, Francesco. Um, governments and I think we can group them together. Governments and payers, basically. Okay, go. So I own... I can even only imagine, I know a little bit by experience, but I know how complicated it is to price and to evaluate these technologies that sometimes come with uh, uh, clinical evidence that's not the traditional, that doesn't follow the traditional pathway. Um, at the same time, um, the governments are responsible for everyone's health and they have a huge responsibility to really work towards uh, increasing that amount of well of health of that capital of health i wouldn't want to be in their shoes in 10 years time when again we see a, a, a decrease uh, uh, so i think they have a huge responsibility we can help as as industry but there needs to be a conversation happening on how we can uh, 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 change and and make uh, all the payment system more fle- flexible i'm not i don't want to loosen the rules i don't want to pay for oh, everything. pretty good well I, do you know what I'll give you that because I, I I messed up by two seconds, so I'll let you I'll let you go over by a couple. So yeah, I don't want to put them to put just a blanket on on everything they pay, but to have a more of a you know um, a flexible conversation on the, all these technologies that are going to hit their markets anyway. Excellent. Well, look, it's been a pleasure. Um, I think our listeners will be delighted to hear what you've had to say around a sort of a, a it was almost a whistle top tour around the world of all the different systems that we're working with really enjoyed it francesco and thank you for your time likewise uh, steve this has been a blast um anytime that was precision medicine forum podcast visit precisionmedicineforum.com to get all the show resources and find out about our upcoming episodes and events and please subscribe or follow on your podcast app so you never miss an episode